On this edition of Inside Music Cast, we welcome back a painter, a musical and lyrical painter who you know well. He's recorded 12 solo projects since his legendary self-titled 1979 release. But over the years, while recording, living life, and touring, Christopher Cross has continued moving forward. With the delivery of his new release, Dr. Faith, we clearly see that the singer-songwriter and his longtime writing partner, Rob Muir, have risen to a fresh new level of musical excellence. With the assistance of his good friends Michael McDonald, Dave Byer, Mark Brown, Eric Johnson, and John Thomas, Cross's new offering of 13 tracks flows from the heart and is natural, honest, and transparent. His signature voice has only gotten better and is still soothing as ever. The orchestrations and horn parts, not to mention his guitar work, are second to none. Well, it's just another morning and I see you at the usual Thank you. 
All right, Inside Music Cast welcomes Christopher Cross back to the show. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Rick, Eddie, nice to be with you. Yeah, we're actually, this is, the, you know what, this is, I was thinking about this. This is the first interview we've done outside of the studio. It is. We're actually sitting in Christopher's hotel room right now. There's dirty underwear everywhere. First interview we've done in person. That's true. I've never actually, never actually met you before. So. That's true. That's well, true. I appreciate you coming to me. Cause, uh, <laughs> Makes it easy. Well, you know, since our last conversation with you, which was back in May of 2009, and you, know, you had just released the Cafe Carlisle sessions around that time, and, and you were touring in support of that collection, you know, while also trying to find time to get into the studio to record, you know, Dr. Faith. And can you tell us um, a little bit about when the recording began on the Dr. Faith project and, and what your thoughts and goals were, you know, now that you were also producing that project? Well, um, I just, I don't know, I'd, I'd uh, gotten away from really writing too much. Rob and I had written really anything in a while, and the Carlisle session was obviously a revisitation of old material. Uh, but I got started getting into the guitar thing. I got divorced and moved into this house with uh, some friends of mine. One of them was a guitar player, Dave Clark, a buddy of mine. And we started getting into the whole guitar geek thing, pedals, and getting back into that. Because that had, be, had been just kind of a prop live. I, you know, I had, had guitars and had a digital guitar system that was just practical. But I started getting back into the pedals and guitars, a little analog thing. Talked to EJ a lot and you know, just started really getting into the R&D of all that. And... Um, getting back into the guitar and decided to, uh, you know, start the record from that point of sonic palette point of view. Instead of, in the past, I've written the songs on the guitar and on Marty and produced the records and they were always keyboard based. We've tried to make Steely Dan records, you know, pretty mm, much. Right. In terms of soundscape. So I just started exploring it with the guitar and I just got with Mark Castleman, who's been my longtime recordist. And we just, you know, started, started putting down tracks and he was just, he and I, for the most part, about, started about three years ago just constructing things and I would just say give me another track and you know give me another track another another sound and started creating this layer of sound with the guitars um and then subsequently you know they kind of became I had tracks and got with Rob and you know we we finished up the songs and the process is pretty much just myself and Mark uh for about three years just you know when I had time off the road just creating these tracks that were all guitar based you know done pretty much to drum loops, and then after that was done, we replaced the drum loops with Dave Byer on drums and right. Mark Brown on bass. And then, of course, Chris Walden did string arrangements. He recorded strings at Capitol on, on nine of the things. So, you know, definitely kind of a solo project. It was really just myself and Mark the whole time, just for about three years, just kind of, you know, ch- just checking out a new process. Because as I said, in the past, um, even though Rob and I did produce window and rendezvous and those records those were still kind of a carryover from carryover from the armadian process you know we learned a great deal from michael as a as a man and as a producer you know i know you interviewed him right uh, and he's a lovely guy and so learned a lot from him learned from the best you know yeah definitely you mentioned that um that this album is is more guitar driven and less on the on the synth keyboard uh was that uh uh, sort of driven by where you were with in, in the writing stage with, with Rob. Uh, is, does it matter to him how the music is generated? I know that he, he um, Rob Muir, your longtime writing partner, uh, is he more invested into the, the music, the lyrics, or does it really matter to him whether it's guitar or what the end product is going to be? Well, as I said, starting after Back in My Mind, when Rob and I started to write for that record, um, Michael and Martin did still produce that record. But then after that, we did, you know, Window and uh, Rendezvous Window, and so, um, and Avalon. And he was involved in the process then, so I bounced a lot more things off of him musically in those times, in the, and we really did collaborate a great deal 
on the whole process, you know, and uh, and in the production as well. But then it got impractical just with, you know, geographics and just my schedule and everything. So with the Christmas record, which I did in 08, I did that myself. And um, and also, practically, to tell you the truth, you know, financially, uh, for Rob to spend time in the studio, I mean, there has to be some remuneration for his time. He's busy, he's got other things to do. And the records weren't doing well enough to really for me to afford to sort of pay him for his time to be sitting in there. So I had to kind of go it alone. Same with Marty, and that's why Marty quit producing after back of my mind is we didn't have the budgets to really afford to pay him in advance. Not like he's money hungry, but it's just a practicality. So yeah, right. Christmas album I did myself and once I got in the studio and did that, I sort of went, hey, I can do this. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I was producing a Marty on that because he played piano on the Christmas record. So anyway, uh, Starting with um, around that time, you know, it, it got to be more where I would send Rob tracks in process and, and he got less involved with the musical part. But during Dr. Faith, he did come over and do some vocal arranging and, and, uh, and, and some things with me and, and, you know, checked in and certainly gave opinions and that stuff. But the production of the record musically was, you know, it's a pretty much, like I said, a pretty much a solo process, you know. Yeah. Dr. Faith seems to be almost... Uh a cool mix between of Christopher's uh, early work that we were all introduced to in the in the 80s and it's it's sort of uh, delivered almost a little bit of that and, and also blended in with a brand new uh, brand new approach in fact you included uh, your good friend Michael McDonald on some of the backing tracks uh, and on the other hand many of the arrangements on Dr. Faith it uh, it, it sort of includes even horn parts uh, so you've, you've you've changed your approach a little bit on this yeah, I don't know. It's Some people say to me, I would never know that was you. When they listen to Hey Kid or something, they'll say, I would have never guessed that was you. And then some people <laughs> say it's, you know, some things like Leave It to Me are kind of unmistakable. But I figure my voice sort of ties it together. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a very different kind of, like I said, approach to the project. I find the record, I think it sounds pretty different. I think it's more like a crowded house record sonically than it is a kind of Michael Lamarty and Christopher Cross record. But, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, and Michael was, once again, McDonald was just that song. Uh, Rob actually, you know, came up with this part, you know, the Dr. Faith, uh, Fix Me, Dr. Faith thing. Right. And uh, the minute we were sitting together and he kind of sang that part, you know, it just was obvious that Mike should do it. And then same with EJ. It's more, you know, they're just two old, old friends. And the only other person I can think of I, I might have involved on this record had he been alive is Carl, you know, um, Carl Wilson, but uh, rest his soul. But so... You know, I just I don't tend to have celebrities on record just to have them. It's really if it musically makes sense, then mm-hmm. I then I do. But yeah, I think it's a pretty different record actually for me. And uh, without the only keyboard is just on November, and I think the the guitar soundscape opens up a lot of harmonic space for my voice. Um, whereas the keyboards, you know, are very harmonically dense and they take up a lot of space. And that's why my voice sounds a little different on this record. I think it sounds better because there's this space opened up where it's just all guitar. And a lot of mono guitars spread as opposed to big, everything being stereo in, in, mm-hmm. the, in, the, in the space. So it left room for my voice and for the strings. Yeah. This album employs a lot, a lot more guitar than what you've done in the past. And, and you know, I guess if, if someone that knows your music and listens to this and listen to Dr. Faith for the first time, they might, they might be a little surprised, you know, by hearing, you know, a, a little more electric sound to your, to your music. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think you've, you played most of the guitar parts in this album, is that right? I think Eric Johnson played some, correct? Yeah, yeah I played everything except on Hey Kid, Eric plays sort of the, there's a clean rhythm part in the background, sort of yeah. picking arpeggiated part mm-hmm. that he plays. And he did the solo, of course. But other than that, I played everything. So EJ's just on the one song and does, like I said, the really cool kind of clean arpeggiated thing in the back, and then he does the solo. But everything else was 
was me. And I think a lot of people, you know, to me, writing and singing is my, are my first priorities, but a lot of people don't really know that I play the guitar particularly or that it's a big yeah. part of my, you know, I mean, unless you grew up in Texas with me or unless you're really a student of my work. <laughs> yeah. But I'm, uh, I, you know, I grew up with all those guys. I grew up in Austin with, with Eric and Gibbons and, and Stevie and, you know, Van Wilkes. And right. that, those were my peers. And guitar was a huge part of my life. You right. Know? You know, um, I was talking to Rick earlier. And for some reason, Dr. Faith reminds me almost like a little memoir. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, it's, it's sort of, at least it's built like one. Uh, in retrospect of you, on Hey Kid, you give some kids of today advice on uh and and on uh, you know as, as youth and on um uh, on on the track I'm too old for this uh you're sort of like you know giving us a state of society and then also on dreamers you invite us to not stop dreaming and then on November you're actually sitting back and and talking about growing old I mean I see that as a progression of a lot of really neat messages was that intended like that or because it's it's very very listenable lyrical yeah well I think that's that's a a student of you and I think and then praying which ends the record which is again really a statement on our spirituality very much conscious Rob and I talked about every time the song started uh, we would talk about sort of what the song sort of felt like or or, you know, sort of felt like lyrically to us. We do that a lot. Sometimes a, a word will pop out or something and we'll get a theme or else we'll just talk about how the song feels and, you know, what it feels like, what it seems like it should feel like, it should be about. And so, uh, you know, we're older. We're both 60. Um, I think we are sort of passing the torch, but we're still very passionate about what we do. I think that's the hardest thing right now is a lot of the press and radio really don't know, want to know about anything, anybody over 40. And so there's this real problem I'm having with Dr. Face probably being received by the press better than any record I've had, except maybe the first record, and yet it's perception versus art, you know. Yeah. Their perception of me being too, you know, old uh, versus, you know, I think some of the best work we've ever done, and it's pretty frustrating because, uh, you know, it's just in their mind, well, you're too old to be on TV or whatever, but the work isn't. Uh, but yeah, all the songs are very, very personal things like Still I Resist about our growth and all the songs you mentioned. So yeah, very conscious to... Uh, yeah, one thing about Hey Kid that's, it's, that's funny is that Eric growing up always was the kid. He was this kid from Austin, because he was quite young. Eric's 55 and I'm, I'm 60. But, uh, you know, when he came out and uh, started getting some notice, everybody would always say, yeah, there's this kid in Austin, Eric Johnson. And initially it was okay, but then over the years, um, you know, he and I have been friends since early teens, and I, people would say, oh, there's this kid in Austin. I'd say, you know, he's 40. He's not a kid anymore. <laughs> and then later on, hey, there's this kid in Austin. He's like 52. He's not a kid. He always, he's, like, he's like Rob Lowe. He always looks the same. Yeah. And I, uh, he and I laugh about it because, you know, and then he ends up on the song called Hey Kid because he always used to be called the kid because he was, you know, phenomenally talented for someone so young. So. Sort of a tongue-in-cheek joke. It was, an inside <laughs> joke, but yeah. Uh, and, he, you know, I just, I don't know that tune, just I really wanted him on something and he, and he, um, he killed it, you know. The only problem with having EJ play on things is you got to cover them live. You got to try to play them live, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is challenging. Let's check out the opening track from Dr. Faith. And this is a track called Hey Kid. Hey, kid, I'm talking to you. I got a couple things I'd like to say. The world's a mess and there's so much to do. And you're the one who gets to save the day. Well, I hope you. Do fine Couldn't do much worse than this generation of mine 
We had the answers but forgot that line that says love is all You mentioned age a second ago and how stations aren't playing anything, you know, by anyone over 40. And uh, which kind of reminds me of a story you told last night uh, during your gig about uh, checking in at the airport, the TSA person. Can you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, well, she just took my boarding pass and just, and just said that she'd, knew, she'd known a singer named Christopher Cross you know, who passed away and she's a big fan. And uh, I just, Randy Newman's, Randy's got a song on, well, it's two albums ago. And it's a song called I'm Dead But I Don't Know It. Yes. And uh, yes. Randy and our friends and I just felt like calling Randy up and saying, hey, you know, like I never really understood that song completely <laughs> until now. But yeah, he has a tune called I'm Dead and I Don't Know It. Um, hilarious. <laughs> so, you know, it's just funny, the perception thing. Uh, she was very sincere. I didn't correct her or anything. But uh, it is a problem, you know, with especially with late night TV, things like Letterman and shows like this where they don't even discuss it. It's like, well, you know, you're just 
you can't be on our show because you're like, you know, you're just, it's over for you or whatever. And then, you know, for me, we were talking about, I watch these shows a lot, Kimmel, Letterman, Conan, you know, and I mean, Jimmy Fallon's been very gracious to me, but a lot of the people, like bands I see on there, the, the young bands, you know, like Atomic Waste or whatever their names are, and some of, sometimes there's something interesting, but to a great degree, they're like Joni says, you know, they're just confetti on my TV. I mean, there's very little there. Uh, maybe the singer's good looking. And I'm into young artists. There's a lot of talented young people out there, but yeah. there's a lot of serial on television late night. And I just think, you know, why, why not put, not me particularly, but why not put someone, you know, um, interesting on there, even if they're older, you know, because I think there is an audience, a broad audience on those shows. Everybody isn't 20, but it's, it's a real problem right now at radio too. Well, that's a question I was going to ask you uh, later in the later in the interview. But who are some of the uh, artists? You know, a lot of times, Eddie and I ask artists, you know, who who were your influences? But who are some of the people that are out there today? Younger, you know, the younger generation type artists that you're into? Is anybody in particular? Well, to mind? I can't say that I'm like on the you know on the cutting edge of everybody that's. Well, new, I mean, it doesn't I, have to be. But I'm I, just, yeah, but I mean, well, I mean, one artist that I really really like a lot is Imogene Heap. Uh, she's a British singer songwriter, kind of pop techno. Yeah, artist, and I've loved her from the beginning when she was a Fru Fru, and uh, I think she's brilliant. So <clears throat> she's someone who I think is amazing, and she's incredibly kind of again underappreciated. Even traveling through Europe, asking journalists when they ask me that question, I mention her; they haven't heard of her, even in the UK, which is kind of like amazing because she's from the UK. Interesting. She's starting to be more known, but um, I think she's amazing. And of all the kind of new artists that I listen to a lot, I would you know Imogene certainly certainly one. Um, but my drummer Dave Byers producing a young singer, and I recommended <clears throat> one of Imogene's tracks to him, and I cut a guitar version of it for him, for her, mm-hmm. you know, for this young singer to do a tune called "The Walk." She, and Imogene's, you know, so yeah, there, there. Are, I mean, I hear a lot of great things out there. I'm just saying that every night on television, they've got to put somebody up there, and they don't seem terribly discerning. And in lieu of somebody like Imogene or one of the real deserved young artists, right. why not stick an old guy up there? You know, right. That's true. And, and I, it's amazing to me how the perception is. Like you said, you know, we, we can't have the guy. It's over. His career is over. You know, and it's like, over to who? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, who, who says it's over? I mean, you know, you're still out there making great music. There's so many great artists that we talk to that are, that are still doing what they do. And some, and some artists are, they may have had all their hits 20 or 30 years ago, but the music they're making today is good or better than what they made then. But it's, it's so dictated by what's happening uh, by the labels, what labels there are left, <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, I think you saw that reaction last night at the show with November. You know, with the, I mean, I got more comments on that tune. You know, after the show than anything. Yeah, and then again, Jimmy Fallon. You know, thanks to Jimmy, I mean, he's he has a lot of '80s. You know, he had Stephen he Bishop on. He's had a lot of '80s. He likes that kind of music, and of course, he got Mike and I on because of the yacht rock thing. But still, Jimmy's, Jimmy doesn't seem to mind. He doesn't seem to care about the stigma. Yeah. He'll have on, one night will be Lenny Kravitz, next time next night Stephen Bishop. He doesn't seem to be worried about his image yeah. being tarnished by having somebody older on. You know what I mean? He, is, is he calling the shots on who actually comes on the show, though? <clears throat> well, you know, Lauren Michaels produces the show, but right. um, Jimmy's a huge music fan and a lovely guy. And I, I don't know. I'm sure they have a music advisor, but um, let's face it, it's, the show's called Jimmy Fallon. I'm sure Jimmy has a lot to do with who's sure. on. And in the case of people like myself or Stephen Bishop, I'm sure a great degree, because I'm sure if he suggested that, they would go, what, who? And Jimmy probably just says, I dig him, man, I want him on. And um, he's the star. So God bless him, because really, like I say, trying to get on Letterman is, I mean, I was on Letterman once with Brian, 
but that's the only time I've ever been on, and, and the chance of me getting on Letterman is, uh, is, is almost impossible. In fact, Eric just played some shows with Will Lee and Anton Fig from, Letter- from Paul's mm-hmm, band, right. and um, you know, I'm sure that Will would love to try to get Eric on the show, but then it going to happen. We've had several artists that I can mention that um, you look back at their body of work that they've done, and sure, there have been those early rises of the hits and that type of thing, but now they're just making some amazing music. A couple of them are Bill Labonte, um, uh Robbie Dupree. I mean, we keep in touch with these guys, and the new work that they're putting out, it's phenomenal. It's really neat stuff, and, uh, you know, I just, uh, I sort of congratulate uh, Jimmy on doing what he's doing and noticing good music no matter what generation you're at. I think he can, you can tell what's good, and I think he's got a, a good yeah, thing. Bill's, he's got a good thing going. Yeah, I love Bill. He's such a great writer. Um, he was on Warriors with me in the early days. I mean, Bill's career as a solo artist, he's a little under the radar. Like, mm-hmm. he's not someone that Jimmy would probably have on, because I'm right, not sure yeah. Jimmy even knows who Bill is, but... Um, Bill's a great writer. Yeah, he always has been. Yeah, so it's like Mac McAnally is another guy who's a great writer from a show. Under the radar, yeah, yeah. Well, let's get back to Doctor Faith, and, and a few of the songs uh, seem to have an, an overall theme of introspection and, and spirituality. Well, not really, you know, sort of acknowledging any particular faith. I mean, that you can pull out of uh, that you can pull out of the lyrics, and, and, and as you've you know, as you've evolved as an artist, um, do these themes become uh, a natural progression for you? Well, I think, you know, they do with age, you know, I think being you know, turning 60, Rob and I both, you know, your, your perspective gets more serious. You're not singing about booty anymore, you know, as much. And, uh, but you still could. Well, you still, yeah. You, you still could, could. If you wanted to. You still could. You'd be considered a lech. But, um, yeah, instead of, you know, now instead of a mother-daughter team, you're looking at a grandmother-mother team, you know, right. so, but right. it's all relative. Uh, but uh, it's... You know, more, I think our, our viewpoints, we're wanting to kind of naturally, being parents and stuff, we want to share a tiny bit of our, you know, crooked wisdom with whoever will listen. And so things, you know, like Still I Resist, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, a song about struggling with sort of being, being happy, the pursuit of happiness kind of thing. And then, you know, certainly song with spiritual songs like Praying, that comes from a, right. you know, a huge Catholic background for both of us that we rejected and then going years with, without really much spirituality in our lives, per se. And then, um, of late, just discover, rediscovering spirituality, but in a very kind of general sense. You know, it's not connected to any organized religion or particular deity. It's just, um, you know, really born out of gratitude to a higher power. And um, so, you know, we're really not fans at all of organized religion. Uh, that's an understatement. So... You know, uh, we'll see. You know, almost an evil thing, but it's you know, I don't see a lot of good coming from it. So, but I think you know, people need to be thankful and and like I said, and then that song it says, you know, thank you is my favorite prayer. So that's what it's really about for us. We're acknowledging that we're very much in touch with you know something, and we're connected, feel connected to something, but but it's not really Jesus or you know whoever they put the name on, you know, right? And from Christopher's latest album, Doctor Faith, uh, this is a track called Praying. in time while the calendar pages are falling like leaves from a tree getting the sense I'm connected to something and not sure what's happening to me a Catholic school kid enthralled to the altar the rituals move me somehow I left it behind when I learned how to think So it's funny that suddenly now I'm 
praying Never thought I would be praying Deep in my soul Praying Trying to surrender control Most of the time I'm not asking for anything Just like to sit for a spell And open myself to the chance for some guidance Cause thoughts in my head keep me in my own hell Praying, never thought I would be Praying, pompous head bowed Saying beautiful words right out loud Think that the sages all down through the ages Were right when they said God is love Love is alive and I know it's inside me And not some old man from above So in the end, let me hear you Keep me near you Grant me the wisdom to be at my best let me forgive so the world may be blessed Praying, never thought I would be Praying, safe and alone Staying, peaceful and still as a stone Thank you for praying May I forever be praying Now it's begun Praying, knowing that we are all one Amen 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 Let's talk about the orchestral arrangements. Um, in chatting with Rob... Uh, a, a few days ago, we started talking about a track that is just beautiful. It was uh, it was in your past walking on Avalon album. It's called Hunger, mm -hmm. and I, th I believe if I'm correct, uh, the orchestration was uh, an arrangement was Jeremy Lubbock on that, right? And the arrangements that Chris Walden does on the strings on on Doctor Faith are phenomenal. Talk to us a little bit about uh, how you worked with the the strings. What did uh, they're such an integral part of a lot of the of the tracks. Yeah, well, it's something I really love to have on records. I don't like paying for it, but it's, it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Dr. Faith cost about $100,000, and about half of that was the strings. Wow. wow. $40,000 of it. But uh, I met Chris Walden through Jeremy Lubbock, actually. You know, Michael Lamartian did all the original string arrangements on the early records, like Sailing, Ride Like the Wind, all, the, mm -hmm. all those records, because he's a great arranger as well. But I met Jeremy Lubbock, and we started working together. And uh, as Jeremy's career, he's incredibly brilliant. He worked with Joni. He's worked with a lot of people that I, Gordon Lightfoot, people that I've, I've loved his arrangements. But uh, he, as he grew uh, in popularity in L.A., he started working with people like Streisand and Michael Jackson, people like that. He got sort of unaffordable, you know, not really affordable for me, even though he would always try to work with me as best he could. He was in demand. And it wasn't practical for me at my level to be able to afford Jeremy to do things for me. So 
he did some things on Avalon for us. But then he recommended a young guy who was in town uh, that he knew that was kind of his protege who just come from Germany. He's got Chris Walden. And he said, you know, Chris is really talented. He kind of sort of, you know, followed in my footsteps to a degree harmonically. And he'll be much more, you know, affordable initially for you because he's starting out. And so that's how I met Chris was the Jeremy. Hmm. Um, and Chris is a you know, brilliant arranger and he's stayed with me ever since. But yeah, those, those arrangements on Avalon, particularly Hunger, Jeremy is, you know, I don't think anybody would dispute he's the master. I mean, he's, uh, you know, harmonically, he's just a genius. In fact, Jack, the conductor for the ISO, we were talking about, uh, when we played Hunger through the rehearsal, Jack said, who did this arrangement? And uh, he asked Chris if he did it. And Chris said, well, I adapted it for a large orchestra, but it's by Jeremy Lubbock. And Jack said, that figures, you know, I'm not surprised. Um, yeah, so he, I think in almost any arranger's mind, I'm sure Jack would agree, Lubbock is one of the, he's one of the, you know, the, the premier guys. And uh, we remain good friends, and he's, he's great. But that song, yeah, it's funny. I played it last night in the show, and, and it, it seemed to lay there a little bit. It's a very dark song. And I think it may be for that type of family picnic audience, it was a little introspective, so we, we're dropping it for tonight. But it's one of my favorites, and people ask me about favorite songs from current records, and I think for Rob and I, both Hungers mm-hmm. is certainly one of them. You know? mm-hmm. And we have guys come back every once in a while say, Hunger's the greatest song ever written, or something like that. And you'll go, oh, I'm so glad you and one of the 12 people that bought it are here. <laughs> so um, November goes over a lot better I think at the shows in the same kind of you know mm-hmm. just solo string way because the lyric is is more accessible I think Hunger is a darker lyric it's more introspective and harder for people to figure out what we're talking about mm-hmm. you know I, I think in the liner notes on this album you dedicated the album to Joni Mitchell mm-hmm. and what was the impetus behind dedicating the album to her well, Joan's been my biggest influence, you know, lyrically and harmonically through my whole career. I mean, if I had to pick one person, I mean, certainly, you know, Linda McCartney and Brian and all those people, Randy mm-hmm. uh, Newman sure. uh, are too. But Joan, more than anybody, uh, collectively, you know, lyrically, harmonically is my main influence and in just over, over her whole career, especially starting with Blue. But one of the big albums that was a huge part of our life when Rob and I used to share a house with Andy Salmon in the old days, uh, for the Roses was, you know, just on every day. Mm-hmm. And then subsequently, uh, all her records. So, I don't know, I just felt like this time in my life, it was just time to say thank you to her just for, for that gift. <clears throat> I haven't gotten the record over to her yet. Um, she's a fairly recluse person. I'm going to get it over to her. And I don't expect it to change her life or anything. But she's always appreciated what I've done. I asked her to sing on Back of My Mind, the song Back of My Mind, and she mm-hmm. liked it a lot and was going to do it. But we ended up, it's a long story why we didn't connect. She, we didn't connect to do the session. And, um, but she, was, she wanted to do it, which was a huge compliment. Sure. And then on Avalon, I asked her to do I Know You Well, the du- duet that I did with Gigi. And Joan just said she isn't really crazy about singing other people's words particularly, you know, which okay. I understand. Mm-hmm. But she's always been you know, kind and, and, and supportive as far as you know, she's always been complimentary about what I've done, which has been a huge thrill. And I... When she was married to Larry Klein, Larry played on some things, Angry Young Men and some tracks, and I did some recording over Joan's house at her studio. And, you know, she's amazing. I, I used to say, I want to write down everything you say. You know, she's, like, brilliant. And she's um, turned me on to some... She gave me a book of Anne Sexton's poems, and she's, you know, turned me on to a few things to read and, and you know, things for lyrical um, ideas. But, um, yeah, her, also her journey as an artist, you know, I followed her process. She... Ladies of the Canyon, uh, Clouds, those records are pretty mainstream. People know those songs. But then as she went on, she followed her own muse and her path completely and, and without caring what anybody thought. You know, the whole thing she did with Mingus and, and all the stuff with Jaco 
very experimental, and her music got better and better and better, more interesting to me, and yet less and less commercial. And she doesn't collaborate, and she just does her own thing, and that's really what I've done, too, as time has gone on, is just done yeah. my thing and right. not really cared about chasing that elusive, you know, commerciality thing and just, um, you know, been kind of a solitary guy. And so that, you know, I've just learned all that from Joan. I can appreciate what you're saying about, you know, you know, you taking a road where you're creating your music and not really bringing in. It can be so easy because there's a lot of, there's a big tendency, as you know, these days for artists such as yourself to sort of catapult themselves further with associations and, and collaborations with newer artists and that, you know the cross promotion stuff that the you know the and I, I really can appreciate you focusing on what you do this is this is my music and staying pure and sort of true as to what you're doing uh, not that I don't appreciate collaborations but I just see them sometimes as a little too marketed you know that's that's my personal opinion you know? yeah well I, my manager says Toby Lidwig my manager says oh, my my best and worst attribute of the same thing integrity uh, because it limits me to what I, I will and won't do sometimes. Now, the collaborative process to me is great. It's just that I particularly just don't do it very well. It's like I, I with Rob, I do, because it's almost, we're almost like one person, and we complete each other's thought, you know, a friendship of over 40 years, mm-hmm. and so many shared influences. But as far as going to Nashville and, like, writing with people and that kind of stuff, I've, I've tried a little bit of that, and I just don't do it very well. It's just an awkward process for me. Writing with Bert and Carol uh, for Arthur was just, and then we did the one other song, Chance for Heaven. That seemed pretty effortless, but um, Bert's Bert. You know, he's, he's an absolute genius and just, you know, he's, uh, uh, it's, it's, you know he, he, makes, he makes it easy. But I don't know, even with Michael, like Michael and I tried a couple times to write a couple tunes, and, and Eric and I have started a few things, but it's just not something I do very well. I'm just not very good at it, so I've stopped kind of trying because... Uh, I just don't think I bring very much to the table that way. Um, yeah. Sitting down with a guitar in a room with a guy, and <clears throat> it's more of a personal process. Well, with Rob, we were talking about Rob Muir um, a little before the interview, but tell us a little bit about uh, your process. You've been working with him for so long now that you guys know each other inside out. Tell me how your process has, uh, for the listeners' uh, in- knowledge, is, you know, how, how that writing collaboration has evolved, and where are you now? How do you work, for instance, on Dr. Faith with Rob? Well, you know, I started with back of my mind when Rob came in. After my first couple albums that I did by myself, uh, then on Every Child of the World I worked with, you know, a few other, a few other writers, Will Jennings and a few people, John Bettis, and then back of my mind, I started working with Rob. And at that point, as I said, we pretty much wrote the songs together. It was sort of like all the tunes like Back of My Mind and, and the tunes from that record, you know, Alibi and all that stuff. We just sort of get together in a room and sort of hammer it out, the music and also the lyrics on just a yellow pad, you know, just work it, you know, just work at it. And it was a real in-the-room collaboration where we just sat there together until, you know, we were finished. Yeah. It's a long process. Um, and that we did that through Avalon, but... Um, with Dr. Faith, you know, again, because of proximity with me being on the road and everything so much, I began to send Rob some pieces of these things because it had been a while since we worked on anything, and uh, he was anxious to do something, so I'd just send him, you know, pieces of, of music and stuff that I had and sketches and stuff, and he would send back, you know, lyrical sketches of things he had to it, and, and, and even though we weren't in the same place... Um, I think that's more his strength. And I mean, I've got songs in my career, you know, like sailing, things like that, that I feel real good about. But I think working with Rob, like I said, it's really kind of completed the thought. So then he'd send it back, and I'd go, that's great. You know, I might have a comment or two. 
but for the most part, it started working like that, and then it was it was more efficient too because I was sending him musical beds, and he was coming back with lyrical beds. So with with Doctor Faith, that's how it really turned out. Where mm-hmm. you know there was some cross collaboration with him coming over and giving musical input, and vice versa lyrical input. For the most part, Doctor Doctor Faith, I just wrote all these tunes, you know, the music melodies and stuff, and sent them to Rob, and he just sent back lyrics. And like I said, with a few exceptions where we discuss something, that's pretty much how it is now. Kind of like a, you know, um, I don't know who else, else writes like that. Well, kind of like Elton John, Bernie Toppin, yeah. I would say is the closest thing I can think of as far as mm-hmm. that type of collaborative process. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hal David, Burt Backrack, same kind of thing. But it's unusual. That's the only true of Dr. Faith, and you know, just it just with this album, that's kind of, it's it's segregated itself now. But, I'm about the work, you know, whatever works out to be the best uh, songs, the songs can be the best they can be is where I'm at, and I don't really care how you get there, and I've never been into counting lines or, you know, that process. I mean, I think whether you write, in the case of Arthur, you know, Peter Allen wasn't really directly involved, but mm-hmm. he, he co-wrote the best line of the song, sure. so I think he very much deserves his credit on the tune. It's sort of funny, because when I was talking to Rob, um, he, he mentioned that. He says, uh, me and Christopher have known each other for so long that, uh, honestly, I, I know what he wants to sing, and he knows what uh, he wants, to, the melodies. And he says, I think we're way beyond the point of me giving him a track or uh, some lyrics and him, and him responding, what the hell is this? <laughs> so you're way, way beyond that. Right. It's rather giggle to me when he says, uh, no, no, we're way, way beyond that. Yeah, most of the time, whatever Rob sends me, it really, it really resonates, and it's great. And also... He doesn't worry too much about Joni's a perfect example of she really knows how to, you know, cram a lot of lyrics into a small space and she's amazing at that and and Rob would always send things sometimes and go, you know, I'm really not worried about you singing this because I know you'll figure out a way to fit it in. And um so we very much both again come from that Joni but all of our big influences are, are the same, you know. Uh again, Brian, Lennon McCartney, Randy, uh Joni. So we, we share the same, you know, uh legacy as far as, you know, where we come from. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the title track, Dr. Faith. And, of course, on this, this song, is, uh, uh, on this song you uh, had Michael McDonald singing backing vocals on it. And, you know, like you said earlier, it was just a part that was, it fit for him. It just worked. And I, I was curious to know, um, I, I don't know if we talked about this in the first interview. I was trying to remember, but it, kind of a typical question. But you and Michael obviously go way back. And I was curious to know how you guys first connected and, and, and uh, what was it that brought you two together? Well, on the first record, which was in 1978, we were making that, you know, Michael, Michael and Martin, who produced the record, you know, was in Steely Dan. I mean, as much as anybody's in Steely Dan. Okay. Uh, you know, he played all the piano from Ricky Don't Lose That Number on. So he worked closely with those guys and subsequently with Michael because Michael was in the same way, kind of in Steely Dan, however yeah. anybody was. So when I was working in the studio with, with Martin, he just called McDonald up and said, hey, you know, I got this kid from Texas I'm working with and you should come down and check it out. And so Michael was a label mate. He was on Warner's. <clears throat> so one night, Michael just came down to Amigo Studios with his two labs, and they run around the studio, and we played him some stuff, and he really liked it. And we were actually working on I Really Don't Know Anymore. And uh, Mike said, you know, if you want some background vocals, you know, I'd be happy to do it. Or, you know, and so we said, great. So he sang around I Really Don't Know Anymore. And then later on in the process, when we got to Ride Like the Wind, and we, you know, the answer part was there, um, we thought of Mike, and he came back in. So the friendship really started back then. And, of course, he was also producing Amy at the time as Amy Holland, as a solo artist, his wife. Right, right. And she had a top five single cut, How Do I Survive? And she was actually up for Best New Artist the same year I was. That's right. So 
we just started this very close family friendship. Uh, my ex-wife Jan, my two, my son Rain, who's 21, my daughter Madison, who's 19, are the are uh, Scarlett, Mike's and Mamie's daughters, same age as Maddie, and Dylan's their sons are just a few years older than Rain. So they were born and grew up together, you know, from birth, and so. Um, the families just were very, very close. We just remained really close. Mm-hmm. And I think Mike and I just, you know, connected because we're just not your typical kind of rock gods. You know, we just live kind of normal guys. And as I said earlier, you know, I don't, I don't ask or expect anything from him and he doesn't from me. And it's just a real good symbiosis. So we just connected right away and we just have remained very, very close as friends and as families. As I said, Amy... I'm very, very close to Amy as well, mm-hmm. and uh, to Maureen and Kathy, his sisters. I've known his, you know, his family, been at all the, sadly for, you know, all the funerals. And I mean, we're just, uh, it's a very, very, very close friendship. I'd say he's my closest friend, you know, of famous people or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. Carl was as well, but mm-hmm. yeah, um, Mike and I are, um, and you know, you've met him. He's that way. He's just a real affable, approachable, great guy, and yeah. there's no ego or attitude there. So it's, it makes it easy. He and Omardian are very similar in that way. You know, Omardian is kind of like David Foster without the ego. Let's dive in and take a listen to the title track from Dr. Faith, featuring Christopher's good friend, Michael McDonald.
Have you guys heard of this band, Twelve Against Nature? Oh yeah, we saw them. We know uh, Scott Sheriff pretty yeah, Scott well. Sheriff, yeah. We no, went I... down to check them out. Of well, it was last June, I think, about a year. We ago. met Michael there, Michael Martin. Oh yeah, Michael yeah, Martin. Well, you saw him in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott's. Um, I forget where I. I talked to him a couple days ago. He said that they're they're playing on a Friday night in front of Steely. I mean, they're no playing. Way. Well, I mean, they're playing in town on a Friday. Yeah. And and Steely's playing the Saturday night, so they're going to okay. be in town playing at a club before Steely plays the next night. And, of course, you know, their dream is that Donna Walter would come down and see him. Well, I don't know but, that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I love those guys. I think they're just unbelievably great. They're tight, aren't they? They're incredible. We shot some of their performance when we went down there. So there's some clips we have up on our site uh, mm-hmm. of them performing. And they're, you know, they do this, they, as well as anyone outside yeah. of Steely, they do it justice. Yeah, I mean, Scott, you know, for anybody who takes, you know, 40 Steely Dan songs and charts out every oh, part, uh, it's just, it's a, it's a labor of love that's beyond. And I think even people as sort of cynical as Donald and Walter would, would, would appreciate You'd it. You'd have to, yeah. And uh, my, O'Martin goes down and plays them sometimes. He does. And uh, next time I'm in Nashville, I got uh, to drive McDonald Carlton down there uh, to play with him. But it'd be tough to, uh, you know, I can't imagine, it'd be probably very hard to get Donald and Walter to go anywhere, but... Um, I would wish they could see them just even for a few minutes because I can't. I, I I believe even they would be touched and honored that yeah. someone would take guys of that skill level would take the time Absolutely. and care and love to play your music. You got to be flattered. Uh, it's amazing. Tom Hemby and uh, who are some of the other guys that are in the oh band? Got Gary Lunn, uh, the guys, even Omardian. They have a, actually new talent that's even arriving in in uh, Mason. Uh, something on, a new guy on keyboards. These guys nail it. Yeah, it's great. I mean, the background singers are just—you can see them like leaving the gig and getting their minivans and driving to pick up their right. kids at school. <laughs> it's great. Uh, right. But they're amazing, and uh, it's funny. My son's a big Steely fan and uh, plays guitar, and he's been looking for real good charts because a lot of the songbooks and stuff are kind of you know not really authentic and, and right. Yeah. So I wrote Scott and said, "Hey, can you send my kids some charts?" You know, because he wants to, and so Scott was kind enough to send four or five charts to him, you know, so they'd be accurate and it's yeah. cool. But yeah, they're amazing, really brilliant group. You know, by the way, I'm an art director for many, many years. I can appreciate your album cover. It's well art directed. Yeah. Uh, it's really, really nice. It's, uh, I, I, the first time I looked at it, I said, now that's a stinking album cover. <laughs> yeah, Fraser's, Fraser's in London did it, and they're, they're a good company. It's based on a Magritte painting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Rene Magritte, so it's it's based on a painting of his. And there were two that I sent the label, and and uh, they particularly liked this one better than the other one. And they went to the Magritte Society and tried to get approval. Unfortunately, it took a long time, which is one of the reasons why the album was delayed so many times. But um, the Magritte, you know, Magritte paintings have been used. Beck used one, Jeff used one on one of his records. Jackson Brown's "Light for the Sky" is one of the Empire Light series. Uh, but they're much more protective now of him because he's he's from Brussels and he's like an icon now. So the society's very protective about using any of his images right. for anything. So we weren't allowed to do it. But you can strangely you can adapt anything you want. So we just took it to Fraser's and 
in Magritte's painting, it's a painting he did for the poet Edward James as a tribute to Edward James. So that in his painting, it's a man in the mirror. And, uh, and so I had him change it to a woman, making sure that they wouldn't somehow perceive it as being me, being <laughs> Dr. Faith. Yeah. Uh, they did a great job of adapting it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to put on there that it's a tribute to Magritte, but they don't want you to do anything no, like nothing. that. But it's definitely based on a Magritte painting. And interestingly, a Swiss journalist told me that if you do a search on the Internet, one of Roger Daltrey's early solo records has the same cover. I mean, it's not done as well, but it's yeah. the same painting and it's the same concept. <laughs> Interesting. It's like from the 60s or something right now. It's wow. pretty well. But no, thanks. I think yeah. the package turned out very well, yeah, and it's, nice. uh, it's intriguing. You know, as an artist that has had the kind of success you've had, you know, winning multiple Grammys, an Oscar, you know, and selling millions of albums, um, you know, what are your expectations for releasing new material in a, in a business climate, a music business climate that has, has changed so drastically, yeah. you know, especially in the last five to ten years? Well, we talked about earlier, the paradigm shift. I mean, I really don't know what anybody does anymore. I mean, I'm fortunately have a name established, and I'm able to go out and play and play shows and make a living because I've got my hits. But Mm -hmm. I feel for young artists. I mean, I think it's going to be almost impossible to create a real career with an annuity and buy a house and have a family and all that stuff being a musician. I don't see how you do it. I mean, YouTube has opened the door to not having to have a record deal and those kind of, you know, hills to climb. But at the same time, you're, you're in a hugely crowded field. I mean, trying to get your head above the crowd on YouTube is, you know, pretty tough. And the, the numbers just aren't there in terms of monetizing the music. I mean, retail's gone. Uh, CDs are pretty much gone. And the downloading has, has destroyed the revenue stream. I mean, even iTunes, they don't pay nearly much, as much per cut as they used to. And now Jobs, which I'm pretty disappointed with iCloud, he's now saying, you know, if you have... If you have a song you've already bought, you can put it on 10 machines now instead of five, you know, okay. and you don't have to pay anything else. So this whole shift with, you know, digitizing music, downloading it, no, no, no torrent or peer-to-peer you know, restrictions and stuff like that, it's just destroyed, it's destroyed the business. And, uh, I mean, Rob and I's attitude about Dr. Faith and most of our records of late and the new one we're working on is we do it because it's what we do. Right, but there's no real promise. I don't expect to make any money on this record. By the time I, I'm still in the hole on the Christmas record and on Doctor Faith, and and I don't anticipate breaking even on those records. It's just you do it because it's what you do, and you do have new product. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though you can sell them at the show, you're. I think I I doubt I'll ever recoup. It's just what we do. It'll be your tours that hopefully recoup. recoup yeah, some well, I mean, make money touring. I'm just saying, as far as selling the product, right. you can sell. That's a place of point of sale. But there's not enough money in there. I don't think there's enough money. There won't be enough money generated off Dr. Faith from all the sources together to probably really recoup all the costs. And Mac record wasn't very expensive. I mean, for the kind of record Dr. Faith is with real strings and the production quality it is $100,000 is cheap. Right, right. And I did it all myself, so. I don't know. It's Something has to change. I don't know what it is. Uh, It doesn't have to, but it would seem that, that fines... More control over the internet, which I hate to say, or fines for torrent sharing, where people are, there's a threat if you if share music, um, you could be fined. There's some of that in France going on. There is some talk in the Obama administration about it, but it's, it's a huge problem. I mean, the kids just don't understand that these are intellectual properties and that someone took time to create them and uh, just to pay for them. Their attitude is, and rightly so, kids think it's on the internet, so it's free. Right. Uh, now, I don't know what will happen. I mean, what could happen is that artists like Bruce Springsteen, eventually, if there isn't any revenue in it, 
I just pick, I don't want to pick Bruce, but just who, somebody. If there's no revenue in it, then maybe someone will just quit making music. And then guys who work at an insurance company who have a Pro Tools rig in their house, they'll make music and put it out on the internet, and that'll be the music that people listen to. Because maybe a guy sounds like Springsteen, and that's good enough, or it's close enough. Because if, if, if your impetus in this is money, um, it, that whole reality is disappearing quickly. Yeah. I own an audio post-production studio, and I had a, a high school kid come in. He wanted to do a job shadow one day. So he comes in, and he's got his, you know, he's got his iPod with him, and he was, you know, like during a break, he was listening to music, and and uh, and his whole goal in life is to be, you know, some sort of musician. I don't know what he was into, what kind of music he was into, and I, I asked him, I said, um, uh, you know, we were talking about, you know, his aspirations of becoming this great musician, and I and I said, I said, what are you listening to? And he was telling me some of the artists he was listening to. And I said, where did you get your music? And he goes, oh, I downloaded it. I said, from iTunes? And he goes, he goes no, from whatever it was, some torrent. The Russian and I, mafia. And I said, don't you, don't you see the problem here? I said, yes, this, this music that you're downloading and listening to is, is basically you're stripping the revenue away from someone who created it, something exactly what, you know, it's what you want to do. Don't you want to make money as a musician? <laughs> and he just... He couldn't put it together. You know, right. he, I think it was a, he didn't know how to respond, actually. <laughs> so. It's a concept that I saw Ed Bradley inter- interviewing a young kid before Ed passed away on 60 Minutes, trying to explain the very thing to him, you know, mm-hmm. that this is mm-hmm. a college kid and said, you know, this is, you understand these are intellectual properties that someone created and they have, you know, they need to be paid for that, right? And the kid said, yeah, I get that. But it's on the internet, so it's free. And then Ed Bradley said, right, but... I mean, intrinsically, they should be paid something, and you're just getting it for nothing, right? And you understand that that's not really cool? And, and the kid said, right. But it's on the Internet, so it's free. Because <laughs> in their attitude, and rightly so, is the Internet's there. If I can get it for free, then that's not my fault. And in a way, that, that model is not wrong. I mean, the, someone, ASCAP, RAA, the government, somebody's got to make it where... Uh, people can't do that, and I and I don't like saying that because I'm free speech and all that stuff and freedom of the internet. But uh, fortunately for me, I'm I'm older and it's it's not going to affect my life too much. But going forward, it's going to be a huge huge issue, and it's very sad. It's destroyed the, the business. I mean, I was talking to Jackson Brown one day about it. It's just it was, what a great time it was when um, you know we made albums mm-hmm. on vinyl and it went to the store and then you went out and played and did concerts and promoted it. And, and did interviews, and then you went back in the studio and made another record, and there was a cycle of life there. It was like, you know, and, and it's gone. Because if you wanted the album, you had to buy it. There was no way of copying a, a vinyl, you know, there were, you know. Eventually there was cassettes, but, you know, it, still, you know, people were still buying music at that time. Right. Well, and it was also a less disposable mentality. With Jackson Brown, I mean, with every album Jackson made, I mean, I was waiting for the record to come out, you know, for every man. Right. You know, Life of the Sky. You're waiting for him to release another record, and when it came out, Somebody would say, new Jackson Brown record's out. Go down to the store, you buy it, <clears throat> bring it home, put it, you know, maybe smoke a joint, listen, listen to it, and really listen to it, you know, four or five times, and, you know, amazing writer, and just that kind of thing. And these were collections of songs right. by a great songwriter that you kind of, you know, and every album that he put out, same with Steely or anybody else, Royal Scam comes out, it's like, man, it's coming out on a Wednesday, four o'clock, I gotta go there and get it. Right. And in their collections of songs, like Sgt. Pepper or whatever, and, and uh, Side A, Side B, and that whole thing, and that's all gone. It's right. just a singles market now. You're right. Kids are just buying songs. And uh, so it's, um, like I said, it's a whole different model, and I really don't know how I fit into it. I don't know what to do. 
um, you know, it's kind of Chicken Little running around, but I don't know. It's so huge that, uh, and it's it's affecting movies uh, as well, video games. And uh, my theory is that as soon as somebody like John McCain writes a book, and The publisher says, well, you know, you would have sold 800,000, but actually you've only sold 10,000 because everybody downloaded onto their Kindle for free. Then they're going to go, okay, now wait a minute. This is a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to do something about this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the you know, that's going to happen. Yeah. You know, know, uh, Mitt Romney's or whoever's book's going to come out, and, uh, you know, John Boehner's book's going to come out, and they're not going to sell. They're going to sell a tenth of what they're going to sell, and they're going to go, well, wait a minute, I've got to stop this. And then it'll become a priority. Right. That's and, true. Then, and, and sadly, music was the first to go. So. But what you're doing, in, a sen- in essence, is uh, like a lot of people are doing, is taking the music to people. You've been spending a lot of time in Europe. You're coming back to Indy for a couple shows. You head back to Europe for a couple more. And then you're back to L.A. How, how, are you, how is this taking its toll on you? How, how are you uh, surviving this? Well, you know, physically it's hard. I mean, at my age, I mean, I'm getting really sick of flying. And it's, it's hard on my body and stuff to do. Um, but, you know, you just go where the work is. I mean, frankly, and, and really, to tell you the honest truth, we're doing these two shows in France, one with the Beach Boys. And, frankly, they're not, very, they're not really profitable. I mean, these two shows out in the open like this, we were hoping to get more shows with them. We're going mm-hmm. back in November for a longer run, but... To be perfectly honest, these shows, these two shows in France that we're going to play, by the time you pay for all the flights and everything that's going on, I mean, there's really no money. Uh, you know, there's some promotional value in it. But um, it's hard. I mean, you know, we're, the work, work is spotty like every, every other part of the economy. And so we just go where it is. And what we're trying to do more and more is not do weekend warrior stuff where we just play one show or two shows um, because you can't amortize that cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just down in Florida with Scott Gross, our friend, and when I was doing the Loggins shows and with Loggins, and those shows didn't really pan out either because they were there were three shows out in the open, and by the time you pay for airfares and all that stuff and the cost of everything, oh, right, right. there's not enough gross. And uh, so we're trying really hard to. I'm now with ICM uh, booking agency, and we're trying to get it to where we we'll, can put runs of dates together because that's the only way it works: just to fly into Indy and then get a bus, or fly into Nashville, get a bus, and drive and do eight out of ten. Something like that, you know, just six, eight nights out of ten nights, yeah. and then you start to amortize your costs. But just flying to Indy for a weekend, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, in this case of the orchestra, it's it's rewarding because it's playing with an orchestra, right. but, but it's it's not easy. You know, I really do love the entire Doctor Faith album, but uh, this one stands out as is probably one of my favorites. This is a track called November. Moth on the window pane could be alive or dead. You across the room, lost in your head All that's left is the storm outside Water beating stone And we hang in a web of stillness all our own Two hearts bundled to the cold Closed eyes Watching love grow old Dear friend Can it really be November 
topaz sky Neap tide and waning moon gone mad Like a song I heard as a little boy That I did not understand But somehow I knew it was sad You know, talking about these gigs that are here in Indianapolis, the symphony gigs, you know, they're, they're sort of few and far apart, you know, for you. They don't happen that often. I know you've got some coming up in October, I think, mm-hmm. in Nashville. But, but, you know, like you said, they have to be rewarding because, you know, you, you know your music throughout uh, the years has always had an orchestral element to, you know, a lot of the tracks. And I, I think it'd be a real treat to be able to perform, you know, your music, you know, backed by a world-class symphony. And, you know, it has to be cool to hear it that way yeah it's probably the most rewarding things i do right now rick to the truth at this point in my career i've done a lot of cool stuff and been very blessed so it is one of the most rewarding things in fact i really really want to try to get rob out to nashville to see one of those shows because he hasn't seen that live and it's it's pretty amazing i mean it is especially when i do like november hunger or something that's very exposed mm-hmm. where it's just myself and the orchestra and you really hear them yeah <clears throat> it's very dramatic there's nothing quite like that sound especially if you're in the studio too it's it's emotional and last night with November, I mean, everybody uh, in the band, and Jack, too, uh, the conductor, he was, you know, visibly moved when he turned around, you know, uh, mm. from hearing his group of musicians play. He loves the arrangement, Walden's arrangement. And, you know, even Jack, who's conducted thousands of shows, you know, I mean, it's, it's emotional, it's moving. And so it is a great matchup, and I think more so than a lot of artists, my music lends itself to this, and we're trying to do more and more of it, because it's... Uh, but as I told you, there's only about 14 working orchestras in the country that do pop series, so mm-hmm. they're not easy to get. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about, uh, we're almost finished with the interview here, but um, talk to us a little bit about, about your band, your current band, Kiki and the team, because, uh, well, just tell us a little bit about your relationship. Yeah, I did an interview not too long ago, and they asked me to put down my dream band, and I started to write down, you know, Vinnie Cayuta, and like, you know, <laughs> and then I, stretched all, I stretched all that out, and, and I listed... Uh, I mean, I love Vinny and all that, you know, all yeah. those guys. But um, I, um, 
I scratched up and then I wrote down my players because really this is the best band I've ever been in. Dave Byer on drums, uh, who's been with me about 10 years, amazing, you know, very underrated. He should be up there with all those guys and he's every bit as good, but Dave's amazing. Um, Kiki Epson on keyboards and vocals, and that's how, actually how I met Dave. I've worked with Kiki for 15 years or so. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then uh, Richie Garcia on percussion. I met Richie through Dave Byer. He's an incredible musician. He plays, he's played with Sting and Diana Ross and tons of people. Um, he's kind of a legend in the percussion world. Um, David Mann, who's on Winds and Second Keys, uh, is my favorite horn player in the world. He played on the Carlisle record, and he, he played the beautiful two solos. Stuff. Beautiful yeah, beautiful. Stuff. I played the, he played the two solos on, on Dr. Faith, on Rescue, and everything. And then... Bass, we've had the position move around a little bit. Jonathan Clark has always been our kind of main guy, but he's out doing a lot of stuff on his own with his own career and all, with Dwight Yoakam. And uh, the guy we're working with right now is a guy named Chaz Frictel, who's a great player, great yeah. singer. Um, and and uh, interestingly, Chaz, uh, 21, well, 25 years ago, Mike called, McDonald called me and said, hey, you know, George Hawkins is quitting the band. Uh, you need bass players, you know. And so I recommended... Chaz to Mike and Mike uh, Chaz played with Mike 21 years yeah yeah and uh, that was how that relationship started so it's interesting now that Chaz is back with me but we've been friends for many many years so he's playing bass with us right now so it's a great band and I was using Linda Taylor on guitar uh, second guitar for a while which I've never played with another guitarist and she's amazing and I was really enjoying it it's frankly just purely a financial decision that you know we're not bringing a lighting director right now and we had you know had to cut back on something and it's no comment on Linda's work because she's a brilliant player, um, and I was enjoying it, but it's just, you know, you can't take that many people out. So yeah. uh, right now the core of the band, I said, is Dave and Chaz, Kiki and Dave Mann and Richie. Yeah. You sent me a text a couple nights ago, and you mentioned Kiki and the possibility of her, you know, being on Inside Music Cast. Because she's, she's got a new album she's working on, right? She does, yeah. She's got a new album coming out, and uh, she's her fifth, I think. And she's a great writer. And, you know, Dave Byer's wife, uh, David Davis, writes, and Chaz has albums rec out, his solo albums. He's done a couple albums with Bernie Charvelli, who you've interviewed. Mm -hmm. And they're all great talents. I have to say, I've watched their careers over the years and, and uh, you know, sort of, I guess, sort of little positions of the Godfather, kind of watching them work on the. But I say, this record of Kiki's um, is a, really a huge step up. These songs, I heard four songs so far. And they're really very, very strong. It's a really, really strong record. Very personal, mm -hmm. powerful record. And so uh, I was saying to Scott, you guys should maybe talk to her. And I've been, yeah. actually in Europe, I got her some interviews as well by telling DJs that they should really check things out and yeah, cool. kind of spread the word about her because she's, she's really good. But yeah, they, um, <clears throat> everybody in the band has their things that they do. And, yeah. you know, it's uh, being a sideman's. You know, it's got to be a little frustrating, I guess, because you've got your own music in your pocket and you want to... That's what Jonathan did. Jonathan Clark, one of my favorite players, but he's got a solo record out and is trying to make his move. And I, I applaud that, you know. I mean, even like someone like Dave Byer, I would, it would kill me to lose him, but he really deserves to be playing with Steely Dan or Paul and Oates or somebody mm -hmm. making you know, more money and being, having more exposure because he's, he's that good a player. Um, he hasn't had that opportunity yet, and it's kind of a double-edged sword. I... I'd like him to have that opportunity, but I don't really want to lose him. So, uh, <laughs> right, you, know, right. you know, I, I'll, if somebody asks me about him and say, boy, he's amazing. I'll go, yeah, but he's crazy. Don't, you don't want to talk to him. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Kiki actually sent me a few of her tracks. Uh, some of the rough mixes. I don't think she's quite finished yet, but yeah. this really sounds good. And yeah. Mark Brown actually co-produced the record or produced it with her. Really? Mark Brown is the bass player from Dr. Faith. Okay. And Mark was playing on live with me for a while. He's an amazing player, but he doesn't sing. And so that's the only reason he's not on the road with us. Right. 
Are you involved in Kiki's album in any way? Did, did no, you? I'm not. And, you know, that's not that unusual because really, you know, like Mike, I sang on one of Mike's early solo records, but uh, in a group with Amy and stuff, but I haven't really... It doesn't always work that way. Same with Eric Johnson. I mean, I sang on tones on one thing, but and, and it's not a problem. Like I said, it's really what works musically. I mean, I would if Kiki asked me. I sang at her wedding. I mean, it's and I sang at her father's funeral. So mm-hmm. the, there's I'm certainly very personally involved with her. But it has to work for her musically. I think if she right. found something that she thought <clears throat> Chris's sound voice would sound great on this, she would ask me, and I'd do it. And one wonderful thing about Kiki's record is <clears throat> she might have told you, but she was lucky enough to have Kenny Edwards sing. Okay. on a couple of her tracks oh, on this record. Wow. And they were very, very late uh, in Kenny's life right before he got sick, real, real sick and passed away. So that's really, really special. They're very close friends. And I think she could, I don't know, this could be the last recordings that Kenny made. It's pretty pretty cool. Wow, amazing artist. Yeah. And this is, this is we're wrapping up here, but just a little off topic. Um, and this actually is a question that came from Scott Gross, and he asked me not to. Uh-oh. He asked me not to credit him with any of the questions. But this, Who asked the question, by the way? Scott Gross. Scott oh, Gross. Scott Gross asked this question. Yeah, but Scott Gross. Scott, 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 Scott Gross. <laughs> Inside music cast. The Scott comedian Gross. Scott Gross. <laughs> yes. But he brought this up, and I didn't know anything about this. But he said uh, he noticed in a recent review of author Ken Sharp's book uh, called The Making of John Lennon and Yoko Ono's Double Fantasy that Lennon's sound engineer, Lita Carlo, recalled a conversation with Lennon. Uh, about you and your song Sailing and he said that uh, John talked about how brilliant he thought it was and how um, uh, and, and that he based uh, one of his songs on it and uh, just what was the do you know do you know anything do you know about this God bless Scott Gross <laughs> Scott Gross uh, well yeah you know I do uh, and I'd shared it with Scott um, somebody uh, I mean the book Scott mentioned just came out but, but way before then somebody sent me a clip from this interview it was from a British magazine where Lita Carlo just was talking about working with John in a double fantasy mm-hmm. and just out of the blue says, you know, yeah, John's a big Christopher Cross fan and he liked the song Sailing and he, you know, wrote this song and I have the little clip of the interview piece and uh, from it and uh, I was pretty blown away. I mean, pretty, pretty blown away that this could even be remotely possible and I never got to meet John. I've met Paul, but I haven't met John. I've met John. But then this book comes out recently that Scott references and uh, that was a lot of validation because even the you know even that was in this magazine and then this guy who did all this research on this book kind of put it even more in print that it became kind of more real to me and it's uh you know incredibly uh humbling and uh, very very special to me that you know the concept that john even knew who i was or had the record and Mm -hmm. and uh it's really it made the tragedy even bigger to me that he you know i couldn't have met him or whatever but um Pretty special. And then I was playing Cafe Carlisle in New York before the Carlisle album, and the sound man there <clears throat> said, I, I do a lot of archiving, and I was archiving a bunch of Double Fantasy stuff, and he said, um, I remember that on just in between takes and stuff, John Lennon was talking about you. And I grabbed him by the throat, and I said, where is that? <laughs> and, he said, and he said, well, man, it's, it's in a bunch of archive stuff. He said it would take me a long time to fish through. He said, but I remember, it. I remember um, him talking about you. And I said, what did he say? You know, and he said, well, he just said, you know, you were cool or whatever, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I would kill to have that. Right. So obviously, you know, John was a fan. So I mean, it's it's it seems surreal and silly to even say, but pretty um, pretty amazing. Yeah. You know? yeah. it's yeah. hard to relate yourself to those types of people. It's like I remember telling Joni one time that I can't I can't imagine my music meaning as much to someone as hers does to my to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to imagine that my music to anywhere in the world could be as important to some human as Jones is to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, she sort of nodded like she understood right. what I was trying to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, 
It is. With people like John Lennon and Johnny Mitchell, it's like it's hard to even put yourself in that right. category. Yeah. You know, a guy wrote songs like In My Life, you know. That, yeah. But it's, um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and thank, thank God to Scott Gross. <laughs> for bringing that, that up Scott Gross yeah Scott Gross well also on the subject of John Lennon um, have you this probably comes from Scott as well but he said we've heard that you've recorded a, a cover of John Lennon's uh, Imagine I did and I gave it to Edel for um, I did it for the anniversary of John's actually I did it a while back with my kids uh, I did this cover of Imagine and Madison my daughter was singing for a while and, and she sang it and then my son Rain did backgrounds and <clears throat> and Mike McDonald had told me that my son could sing because I guess Rain has sung in the car with Mike and stuff, but uh-huh. he's kind of shy. Yeah. And so he came in the studio. I had to pay him 50 bucks. Uh, <laughs> but he came in the studio and he sang. Uh, and it, I'll have to send it to you. It's pretty scary. I mean, at the end when he comes in just singing some backgrounds, Doug Ryder, who mixes the records, just said, man, the timbre of his voice and everything about his voice is so you. It just sounds... And I think he sounds cooler than me, really. He's, he's, like, he's got this very cool thing to his voice. Cool. He doesn't like to sing, but he does, and he can. So they, the kids did an arrangement of it. Then I did my own arrangement on key, and I gave it to Edel as a bonus track for Japan, and they haven't used it. But I did send it. Toby, my manager, sent it over to Yoko's lawyer uh, just to see if there was any way to include it somehow in the celebration you know, the, of John's death, not the celebration of John's death, but the celebration of his life at the time of his death anniversary of death 30 years and mm-hmm. we never heard anything back but i'm not surprised but i'd love yoko to hear it sometime i don't know that she didn't hear it but i hope to have the opportunity sometime to maybe get it to she or sean or julian and just sure. have her hear it but um it's a cool version it's uh, i'll send it to you it's very um it's it's much more up tempo and stuff than a lot of the imagined versions mm-hmm. you know it's got more movement to it and um it's funny, it, it, we, it, we have strings on it, and we thought, uh, really? I should probably wow. work it up with the orchestra sometime. Yeah. But as I said, we've got 10 songs we aren't even playing, as it is. So, um, maybe but in, yeah, maybe it's in a, Nashville. It's a very cool version. <laughs> yeah, I, love really? that, I love that tune. And uh, yeah, I've done a lot of strange things like that, interestingly. And then, of course, like the Lemons theme thing that I did, yeah. that Rob and I did, you know, as sort of these, all these little off projects, like right. the two Christmas songs we wrote, and then Lemons theme. And so we do little fun things that come up, like Imagine and like. Very and cool. there's a track for Dr. Faith called P.S. I Got Carried Away that's the 14th song for that album that didn't get... <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's actually... It's, it's called P.S. I Got Carried Away and it's actually about spousal abuse, believe it or not. Oh, okay. uh, It's about spousal abuse because it's about this guy writing from prison saying to her saying, you know, I'm sorry I got carried away oh, you know, wow. and I hit you. Um, <clears throat> which I was telling Rob, that's a cheery topic. You know? <laughs> uh, but <clears throat> we didn't put on the record... Again, I gave it to Edel for a bonus track. They haven't used it, but we couldn't figure out where it flowed in the sequence. It just didn't seem to work. It's just acoustic and a little celeste and so, but it's a very cool song, and uh, maybe we'll put it on the next record, but it, it, was, it was recorded for Dr. Faith, but we didn't put it on there. Interesting. And, uh, of course, you know about talking about her because that was yeah. in that special collector's thing that they did. You know, the collector single thing has the single from 74 with Eric oh that's right that's and right. That's, that's a cool thing so there's all this you know cryptic stuff if people look under Bright Rock you can find it well it just in wrapping up you just mentioned you know, maybe the next album is there a next album in your, in your future I know, I know Dr. Faith just came out but I mean are you even thinking that far ahead yet yeah we are strangely you know I don't know why I got into this zone after uh, my divorce and just got in this creative period and, and uh, you know wrote a lot of songs uh, in a row we've got more songs on this record than any record we ever made and uh some we didn't even use. So yeah, I'm writing right now. I've got a lot of things in process with Rob. 
And I already told Edel about it, and they're like, well, okay, you know. I mean, they're pleased to not have to, if we do, another, if they want to release another record, uh, I said, I'm sure we can be ready in a couple, you know, in a year and a half or a couple of years when it would be time for a record. We're definitely going to make an, another record. I don't know whether Edel would want to release it or Eagle Rock would release it. I mean, you know, as we talked about, the sales are so so small with everyone mm-hmm. that it's, um, at some point, does is it, is it make any sense for them to do it? But there's so many songs in process right now. They're pretty just sketches, but there's so many songs in process that I don't think I could stand to not record them. So right. um, I'm setting up a studio in Austin right now, and we're going to start you know, finishing up some of the tunes and start recording pretty soon. So um, it'll be interesting how we do it this time. You know, If there's not a real interest in the label there, we may just release songs out to iTunes or do an EP. I mean, I don't know, how, I don't know what'll happen. We'll just have to see. But yeah, we're we're already recording for another record. I mean, already writing. So very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us. This Rick, Eddie, enjoyed it. I'm glad we finally uh, got this together. Is, this is been... neat, you know. And to our audience, you know, Doctor Faith is is a new album. It has 13 wonderful, fresh songs. Uh, it's it's definitely worth everybody's collection. Let's get out there and support Christopher and and let's buy this album. Spread the spread the word. Where, where can they buy it, Christopher? I mean, God bless you, Eddie. Uh, well, you know they can buy it on Amazon, Amazon or and iTunes, probably the best place. Or any you know, the Amazon the retail outs. I get Amazon's probably the best place to buy a hard copy. Mm-hmm. And then um, I mean we might be in Best Buy, but I don't know. But I think Amazon's the best place to buy a hard copy. And then certainly iTunes. I mean I certainly encourage him as Eddie says to. You know, buy a legitimate copy. Right, exactly. And, uh, Please do that. And at least do it from <laughs> iTunes. But uh, as Eddie said, the artwork's really nice, you know, and I think it's nice to have the physical CD, you know. The, the cover, it's interesting you brought up the cover because, you know, the girl in the picture is looking, we, we, just like lyrically, we feel like she's looking to the future, but also her past because she's right. looking at the reflection of her, the back of her head. Right. So there's some message there. But <clears throat> yeah, I like the artwork a lot. And it's not like having an LP, but, you know, I, I think they should get the physical copy because the package, it's a nice package. Yeah. Some of your best work. It's a beautiful album. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I gotta gotta thank Scott Gross also one Scott more time. Gross, for, yeah. Yeah. Scott, <laughs> no, no, no. Scott Gross, yes. Well Scott, Scott was instrumental in, in coordinating <laughs> he all is. this. So. He's, he's our buddy. Look, come on, he come is. on, Scott. <laughs> I wish he could have been there. He was gonna come. Uh, he comes out to a lot of gigs. Yeah. But um he and Mary Bell, so hopefully I'll he, he, I'd like him to see a symphony show. I think he said they might be able to come to Nashville, so is that one coming up in Nashville? What day? In October. October, October 20th or the 27th. Yeah, yeah. I'll need to meet up again. See if we can get... Well, Scott was going to come the last time uh, to Nashville, and then it, the show was flooded out. Mm-hmm. That's right. Oh, that's yeah. right. That's so those. we're, re- we're now just now replaying those three shows at, this, at the show in uh, Nashville. So It'll be good. Yeah, great. Nice right, well, to see you guys. You. Thanks thank a lot. You. Thank, you. thank you so much. Special thanks to Christopher Cross for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Also, very special thanks to Inside Music Cast correspondents Scott Gross, Brian Pearson, Kim Riley, Max Zabe, Rupe Reith, and Mikhail Ingstrom. And please visit our website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can catch up on all of our past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out additional bonus content. Inside Music Cast is also on Facebook, where you can become a fan and join in on music conversation with Inside Music Cast fans from around the world. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. <laughs>